Good evening. I'm Judy Cooper. I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt. I'm really happy to see so many of you. In the very first chapter of his new book, Why Read Moby Dick, Nathaniel Philbrick describes Herman Melville's novel as the greatest American novel ever written. And he goes on to say, and I quote, the more our world changes, the more relevant the novel seems to be. As individuals are trying to find our way through the darkness, as citizens of a nation trying to live up to the ideals set forth in our Constitution, we need more than ever before Moby Dick. If you've never read Moby Dick, and I think most of you here in this room, you look like you have read Moby Dick. <laughs> Don't ask me how I know that. Uh, I think you wouldn't be here if you hadn't read it. Um, I think you'll enjoy Nathaniel Philbrick's take on it. He's definitely an unabashed fan. In his best-selling book, In the Heart of the Sea, which won the National Book Award in, 2000, in the year 2000, he told the story of the real-life incident that inspired Moby Dick, and now he um, turns his sights on the fiction itself, and he offers us a tour of this classic American novel. Nathaniel Philbrick is the author of numerous bestsellers uh, about American history, including Mayflower, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, The Last Stand, Sea of Glory, and Away Offshore. And we have a display of some of those titles and some of um, the various editions of Moby Dick uh, on the table back there. He is the founding director of the Egan Maritime Institute on Nantucket Island, and he's a research fellow at the Nantucket Historical Association. Please join me in giving a uh, sound Baltimore welcome to Nathaniel. Thank you. Well, thank you. It is great to be at this historic library. I'm a huge fan of libraries at Nantucket. It's the Nantucket Athenaeum, which uh, is not only a library, it's also something of a historic museum. And on Nantucket, the big struggle is everybody comes there in the summer, but in the winter, it's, it's down to us, uh, which is a community of about 10,000. And having the Athenaeum open uh, in January and February, uh, is, is what really uh, keeps us going. And I know that this library has a similar function when it comes to, to this great city. And, and so it is a real pleasure to be here. And uh, why read Moby Dick? It's a question many high school seniors have asked themselves. <laughs> I know I asked myself that as a high school senior. And I uh, have began with a very tortured relationship to this novel. My father is now a retired English professor uh, in American with a specialty in American maritime literature. And uh, he, we lived in the, he, he taught at University of Pittsburgh, which meant that I was in the maritime center of, of the universe, <laughs> Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And um, I was a, a kid that uh, had developed a, an unlikely love of sailing uh, during a couple of summer vacations at my grandparents. And, but I lived in Pittsburgh. And, uh, but I also did not want to read Moby Dick because my father would teach the novel just about every year and had nothing but good things to say about it. And when you're a rebellious teenager, the last thing you want to do is endorse what your father thinks is a good thing. So Moby Dick was the last book in the world I wanted to read. And I was a senior in high school when the AP English teacher made it clear that if I was going to graduate, I had to read Moby Dick. And it meant that I uh, had an experience that is probably the worst experience an 18-year-old can have, is to admit that his father had been right all along. I uh, read those first three words, call me Ishmael, and I was not hooked. I was harpooned. Uh, because in that uh, first, chat, first page, really, goes from that, he just, you know, Ishmael is depressed. He is experiencing a damp, drizzly November of the soul. I mean, any depressed teenager can relate to that, right? But then it goes to describing the city of New York on a Sunday, where all of these pent-up pent uh, urbanites are down at the battery, gazing longingly uh, out at the sea, at the ungraspable phantom 
of life. And that was me, man. I was, you know, I was in the Steel City wishing uh, I could go out to sea. And so the, the novel for me was, I was into it from the beginning. But just about every one of my classmates did not share my enthusiasm. And I couldn't blame them. I mean, it is an infuriating book, particularly when you're 18 years old. You know, you're reading for the plot. And there's a pretty good plot, a plot we all know already. You know, the maimed captain, Ahab, out to, to uh, seek his revenge on the white whale. We all know the story. And the problem is, Melville will insert chapter after chapter. I describe, uh, compare them in uh, Why Read Moby Dick to speed bumps that are put in there. Just when you think the plot's getting going, no, it stops. And off he goes on a tangent. And, when I, and then that can be infuriating, uh, particularly if you're reading the book for the reason many of us read books, is to, to lose ourselves in the plot. And I, you know, I had one, uh, ver and what I have since found, after I think I've read it close to a dozen times now, and uh, I have since found that every time I read it, it's a different book. And that the older I get, the richer the book becomes. And, and my word of advice is that so many of us have been assigned Moby Dick in high school and have been running from it ever since. And I, I think there's at age of 31, which was Melville's age when he wrote this book, is a crucial uh, chronological watershed when reading this. Because when I entered my 30s, by this time, uh, I, I shared a lot of where Melville was. He had children and you know was beginning to realize that life is not just going on a whaling voyage. It's trying to take care of you, not only your own children, but your parents and all this. That's just where Melville was. And when I was at that point, I was beginning to say, yeah, you know, there's, there's aspects of this that I had no clue about when I read it 10 years before. And since I've returned to it from there, once again, every time it's as if it's a new book. And one of the, I'm, I write generally history. And one of the things that I found in working on this book was in looking at the historical context when Millville was working on it, I began to realize that's why this is a timeless classic. In 1850, America was 10 years and change away from the outbreak of the Civil War. Uh, the winter Melville was working on this book, his father-in-law, who was a judge in Boston, found himself in the middle of an extremely controversial case. Recently, it had been passed the, the Fugitive Slave Act, which meant that any slave that had escaped from the southern states and was showed up in the north had to, by law, be returned to his slave master, his or her slave master back in the south. And this meant that suddenly slavery was no longer a regional issue. You could not be a, a northern gentleman saying, oh, it's an awful thing. You were now tied into it. It was now a truly national problem. And in Boston, uh, when one of these cases came up, riots ensued. And Melville's father-in-law was right in the middle of it. He was hung in effigy uh, uh, during this. And this was all happening as he's working on a book about a whaling voyage to the South Pacific. And so all of the pent-up frustration that, uh, and, and fear of knowing that uh, by this time people were realizing a catastrophe is imminent. And uh, people would do everything they could to dodge the bullet in the next 10 years. But eventually, it erupted with the Civil War. And so all of that is inside Moby Dick. Uh, it's you know, all the passions that uh, resulted in a revolution in 1775 uh, that contributed to the Civil War in, in 1861 and continue to drive our march into the future are there in Moby Dick. So that whenever we encounter a crisis, which in this day and age seems to be on pretty much a daily basis, Moby Dick becomes newly relevant. Uh, when Melville published this book in November of 1851, it found no audience. Uh, uh, no one was interested. It was a critical disaster, a popular uh, disaster. It really was the end of his career as, as a, a, a 
he would continue to write all his life, but it would he would not be the professional writer he had been. He he had begun as as a bet with a bestseller called Taipei about his time in the South Sea South Pacifics, and that would always be the novel he was known by, even at his death. Moby Dick dropped like a stone, but it would and it would not be until after World War One when the ascension of Moby Dick into the canon would begin, and uh, I, th I I think. The world had to go through the trauma of that great war to begin to get on the wavelength Melville had embedded in this story. Uh, because after that, you, you see all of the young, hot novelists are looking to Moby Dick as the litmus test. Ernest Hemingway was very proud that he had read Moby Dick in high school, unassigned. Uh, uh, as an expat, uh, there is, and I refer to it in the book, uh, of the writers in Paris in the 1920s, Moby Dick was the book that, you know, what do you think of this? Uh, in the late 20s, William Faulkner, in an interview with the Chicago Tribune, would say that Moby Dick was the one novel that he hadn't written that he wished he had. I was on book tour for The Last Stand uh, a year and a half ago, and I was at a bookstore, a wonderful bookstore in Oxford, Mississippi, and had a, had the chance to get a tour of Faulkner's house. You know, it's it's great. It's it's pretty much the way it was the day he died. They, you know, his old bourbon bottle is still there up, up on the uh, refrigerator, but there in the living room is a Rockwell Kent print of Ahab. I mean, such is how this novel was embraced by 1951 at the centennial of its publication it was recognized as the classic. And as with each generation, uh, the, the characters in this book are seen in different ways. During World War I, Ahab was Hitler. Uh, in 2010, uh, there was a, I saw an article somewhere comparing BP oil to Ahab in its relentless hunt for petroleum. And uh, I've seen, also seen blogs comparing the Middle Eastern dictators that are now being deposed to Ahab. This book resonates in a way that is, is, is amazing. Uh, and, and, and one of the things I have found in my own uh, tortured relationship with this book is that it, it's a book that is grand in its sweep. But there's also microclimates within this book real intimate moments that you would not necessarily expect. And you know, we all live in this world of constant uh, digital blare, you know, where things are happening faster and faster. Uh, things are, you know, we're getting tweeted and whatever, all that, you know, Facebooked and all that kind of stuff. And what I have found with this book is it is a wonderful refuge from all of that. It, yes, it is a big book. It's a doorstop. But it also is broken up into 150 little chapters. And so that it, it really, I, when I was uh, reading Moby Dick for this book, I was on a book tour and I had my a paperback version. And it was amazing. I'd be in a hotel, in a, in a uh, airport, you know, with all of the TVs and the announcements going on. And I could, I'd get into a paragraph of this novel. And it was like I was in a completely different world. And, and I think a, time, a novel that is truly timeless is able to communicate a sense of what it is like to be alive in any time. And that is what Melville, along with Shakespeare and, and a lot of the other great authors, is able to, cre able to do. My, um, I had the great luck 25 years ago to move to Nantucket Island, which is kind of the holy ground of Moby Dick. You know, it's where Ishmael goes uh, to, from New Bedford. New Bedford is a fine whaling port, but Nantucket was, as Ishmael says, the great original. It was where it started. And I moved there 25 years ago in 1986, uh, not because I was a, a Melville fan, but because my wife got a job there. And uh, she's an attorney. And we moved there, but I thought, this is great. I am going to the, the place, the holy ground of Moby Dick. And it was about a year into it, as I was becoming increasingly interested in the history of the island, and that's really what set me on the course I have followed ever since, that I discovered that Melville had never been to Nantucket when he wrote Moby Dick. 
Such is the power of the literary imagination. And chapter 14 of Moby Dick called Nantucket uh, is a five paragraph tour de force. Uh, but it's not based on any personal experience Melville had of the, out, of the island. But he had deep personal experience with Nantucketers. For two years, he had, he had served in the whale fishery uh, and encountered many Nantucketers. And it was in the whale fishery that he had the opportunity to read the real life story upon which the climax of Moby Dick is based, the story of the whale ship Essex. Uh, that in 1820, about 1,000 miles to the west of the Galapagos Islands, was rammed and sunk by a whale. And now where Moby Dick ends is where that story really begins. It becomes a survival tale. And I wrote a book called In the Heart of the Sea that is based on that. And I have to say, one of the biggest challenges I faced was what to do with Moby Dick in this story. <laughs> Moby Dick is this huge, iconic presence. Talk about uh, casting a shadow. And I realized as soon as when I, this was going to be the book, I did not want to read Moby Dick at all while I was in this process. Because the gravitational pull of Moby Dick and Melville and Ishmael, who I'll talk a little bit about, is such that you know, how can a mere mortal write nonfiction uh, without getting it totally, getting your head messed with this, with this novel? So it was a novel I purposely spurned while working on that book. But I have to say, after I had written a first draft and was, was working on a rewrite, I then sort of cracked the book and began to look at it. Because this, the, Moby Dick is a great novel, a great work of fiction. But it also contains unmatched, uh, almost journalistic accounts of whaling. I mean, the, 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 the bedrock of, of nonfiction upon which it is based is as solid as anything. So you know, if you want to know what whaling was like, read this book. The, his account of killing a whale, Stubb kills a whale, is one of the great, I mean, it's horrifying. It's awful. But it, it is just a classic. And you know, it, it's, it's, but what Melville does is use that to then reach into uh, the stratosphere, into those metaphysical reaches. But what he's you know, one of the pet peeves I've had is that everyone seems to say, well, what, is, what does Moby Dick represent? And I think that just kills it. I mean, how many, you know, Moby Dick is this. Baloney. Moby Dick is a really big sperm whale. <laughs> and, Mo and Melville is very specific in who he is. He is as real as any of us in this room. He has a wiggle waggle when he's really going fast. He's got special humps, you know, all the, I mean, this is a whale. And to, I think you diminish the book by insisting that this creature it represents whatever. And so, yes, you can take the resonances and follow, but you owe it to yourself to read this book as really about a big friggin' white whale. Uh, that is being chased by a deranged uh, Quaker with a vengeance called Ahab, and you know, and and just as a point, you know, I in the nonfiction I write, I, I all my books tend to build towards absolute chaos, and you know, everything gets really bad. And looking at Moby Dick, those last three chapters, you know, talk about action sequence writing. It is wonderfully choreographed. It's exciting. It's paced. It's nuanced. It you know goes with anything. You know Melville in another life could would have been great a great scriptwriter. You know doing he I can't imagine the car chase he could create. I mean because that's the kind of excitement that he creates in those three chapters. There's obviously a lot more going on, but there is that underlying bedrock of 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 real interconnection with reality and telling a story. Now, one of the, the things I deal with a lot is I was named for Nathaniel Hawthorne. And so, uh, and, and Hawthorne is, Moby Dick is dedicated to Hawthorne. And so in, I, felt, I felt it incumbent to talk about that relationship 
which I think is, was, is absolutely critical to what Moby Dick would happen. And in August of 1850, Melville was on summer vacation in the Berkshires with his family. Uh, his, his uncle had always owned a house in the Berkshires. He had spent some of the happiest days of his life as a child in the Berkshires. And so he was there with his family and uh, for the summer, he was a New Yorker at that point, and he was pretty much finished with a novel about whaling. Uh, and judging from the letters of people who talked to him, it was going to be a fairly traditional kind of picaresque novel about whaling. And then in August of 1850, uh, on a hike up Monument Mountain, uh, during a shower of rain, he found himself with Nathaniel Hawthorne. They, during that shower, they had a, a brief conversation. But Melville was moved to get a copy of Hawthorne. And Hawthorne was about 15 years older than Melville and was one of the few writers in America that was then, after time work doing a series of other jobs, was living off, was a professional writer and successful enough to live on it. He had just published The Scarlet Letter which was, you know, so this was the guy. I mean, this was, he was happening. And, and Melville picked up an earlier uh, short story vo uh, volume, Mosses from an Old Manse. And he read it and he wrote a review of Mosses from an Old Ma Manse that he then published anonymously uh, that got quite a bit of air and, and uh, airplay. And, and um, uh, it was really a love letter uh, to Nathaniel Hawthorne and it talked about Hawthorne's power of blackness. And you can see that this is where Ahab comes from. And it's the, the irony is, is that Hawthorne was this shy guy. Uh, he didn't want, he knew Melville was in the neighborhood and he had told, and Hawthorne was in Lenox, uh, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires, about not just a few miles from where Melville was. And he had told his wife, I don't want to meet him. You know, I just want to stay away. But they ended up, he ended up having to meet him and, uh, and, and they became good friends. And, but they were completely opposites. Um, Melville was outgoing. He had, you know, he had experienced the world. He had gone, you know, been in a whale ship. Uh, he, he was exuberant. And Hawthorne was this, this, this shy ectoplasm that would, uh, you know, spin these lapidarian stories about the human heart and guilt. You know, something bad happened that he was always gnawing over. And, um, and, but this was fascinating to Melville. But uh, they would uh, have conversations, uh, often at, at Hawthorne's house. And, and Hawthorne's wife, Sophia, would, would uh, sort of watch, because she loved her husband, and, and watch as this, this boy would, you know, this young 30-year-old would just, you know, sort of ask her husband these questions, who would just sort of quietly take it all in. And this is this interaction uh, is absolutely critical to how Melville would would reimagine what had the novel he had already written. He would just tear out the foundations of that novel and redo it completely. And and one of the one of the great things about Moby Dick, which makes it a very modern novel, postmodern novel, is that it came from that. You know, he pulled out pieces, inserted new pieces. There is a, a slapdash quality to the novel that makes it very current and, and a work in progress. And it has to do with the fact that Melville reinvented it right there. And I'd like to read you a, a passage from Why Read Moby Dick in which I talk about the Melville-Hawthorne connection and, uh, and how you know, I, I, as I said, uh, it was Hawthorne that really set Melville on the course of, of Ahab. During the fall of 1850, Melville and Hawthorne got to know each other. Temperamentally, the two men could not have been more different. Melville, Sophia Hawthorne wrote, was a man with life to his fingertips. Hawthorne, on the other hand, preferred to keep life at a distance. In fact, Sophia confessed in a letter to her mother that prior to meeting Melville on Monument Ma Mountain, her shy dear of a husband had specifically requested not to be introduced to the young and enthusiastic writer. Even in friendship, Hawthorne remained remote and detached, while Melville was always crowding in. 
Nothing pleases me better, Sophia wrote of their new literary friend, than to sit and hear this growing man dash his tumultuous waves of thought up against Mr. Hawthorne's great, genial, comprehending silences. <laughs> but Melville was not all ardent impetuosity in his conversations with Hawthorne. He was, as Sophia observed, a somewhat uns he had there was, as Sophia observed, a somewhat unsettling method to his madness. In a letter to her mother, Sophia revealed that the one thing she didn't like about Melville were his small eyes. Once in a while, she explained, his animation gives place to a singularly quiet expression, out of which those eyes to which I have objected an inward dim look, but which at the same time makes you feel that he is at that instant taking deepest note of what is before him. It is a strange, lazy glance, but with a power in it, quite unique. It does not seem to penetrate through you, but to take you into itself. This is Melville, caught in the act of creative infiltration, the sneaky, deceptively lazy way that he took what he needed from Hawthorne. Instead of a literary influence, Hawthorne was, for Melville, more of a source of emotional inspiration, the figure that moved him to take Shakespeare's lead and dive into the darkness. Just as Ahab co-opted the Pequod, Melville used Hawthorne's fiction only as it served his own literary purposes. So that is the sort of the personal story behind it. But then what I spend a lot of time in this book talking about, and by the way, M Moby Dick is a big, intimidating book. I vowed to have a slim, as non-intimidating imitating book as possible, uh, because this is really intended. If you've read Moby Dick and you love it, I hope you would read this and you know just find. I, I, you know, I, it's my quirky take on on Moby Dick. If you have, if you know, you're in the you're thinking about reading it, hopefully this will push you over the, the edge. Uh, if you just read one page of this book and throw it down and then pick up the novel, it will be, I will feel as if it was mission accomplished. But one of the things I, I, I like to do about this book is, for me, it, the level of the writing is just unparalleled. Melville had discovered Shakespeare in his late 20s, after all these experiences, those small eyes uh, were bothering him terribly after his time in the Pacific. Uh, he, he, and, and so he would try to buy large print books. Sound familiar? Um, and, and so he discovered a large print edition of Shakespeare uh, just a few years before he wrote Moby Dick and just ingested the whole thing. I mean, just channeled it. He channeled the way he had channeled whaling. And then he moved on. You know, then there was, there was Milton and all of this. But, um, uh, but it created so that when he wrote this book about whaling, uh, it's, it's been called the long, you know, it's an iambic pentameter poem in a way. The poetry is just amazing. And, you know, good poetry isn't all about lush and gorgeous words. It's creating scenes and things like that. It's, it's about you know, just finding life in a way. And I, I'd like to read another passage that talks about uh, the poetry, Melville's poetry, and, and just give you a chance of, to listen to his words because all it takes is a paragraph of this book. You know, you don't have to read Moby Dick from end to end. Dip into it and see if it takes. Good poetry is not all about lush and gorgeous words. It's about creating an emblematic and surprising scene that opens up new worlds. When the Pequod meets the whale ship Albatross, the men at the mastheads find themselves passing each other silently in the sky. Standing in iron hoops nailed to the mast, they swayed and swung over a fathomless sea. And though when the wind ship slowly glided close under our stern, we six men in the air came so nigh to each other that we might almost have leaped from the mastheads of one ship to those of the other, yet those forlorn-looking fishermen, mildly eyeing us as they passed, said not one word to our own lookouts while the quarterdeck hail was being heard from down below. I mean, what a scene that is. 
you know, this, this remote intimacy. I think it's a wonderful, I hate to use the word metaphor, for where we are today, you know, where we can pass inches from each other. But, you know, really, what do we know of each other? It's, you know, that, that sense, you know, that's there in Moby Dick. And one of the things I also talk about in this book, in addition to the language and trying to set the scene, the historical scene and, and Melville's relationship with Hawthorne, is what happened to Haw Melville in the backwash of this incredible novel. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story in its own, own right. I mean, he published this book to, to little notice in November of 1851, and uh, it, he would quickly write another novel, and from there on, he was less and less of a popular success. He would write some very good short stories, some of the great short stories of American fiction. Bartleby the Scrivener, one of the great ones, the Encantadas. Anyways, I'm an enthusiast. But, um, but he would go on, and by uh, the Civil War, he couldn't, they couldn't make a go of it uh, in, in the Berkshires, and so they moved back to New York City. Um, Melville would work for uh, close to 20 years as a customs inspector, you know, a, you know, a very low-level job, a job rife with all sorts of corruption in which he tried to, you know, operate as a, as a diligent and upright man within this. One of the hardest things you can do. And, uh, and by this time, his relationship with his wife had deteriorated. They did not have a happy marriage. Their eldest son, who was just a baby uh, during Moby Dick, uh, seems would, would shoot himself to death in his bedroom uh, in New York. Their, their other son would die alone in San Francisco. And uh, there were sisters, that, uh, but uh, it was just a very sad life. And he would continue to write. He would write, move into poetry during the Civil War, uh, write uh, some, and really good poems. He, he's written a book called Clarel, which is about a trip to the, uh, uh, a, a tour of, of the Holy Land, the Middle East. And it's based in part on his own tour of the Holy Land. About five or six years after the publication of Moby Dick, Melville was in really bad straits. They were worried about him. And so they sent him off on a vacation all by himself. Uh, he went to England on his way to the Holy Land. And there, Hawthorne was now consul, uh, in, uh, American consul in Liverpool. And uh, his, his, his roommate at, at Bowdoin was Franklin Pierce, president. And so he had gotten this plum job and was now you know, the American novelist. And so Melville made his way to Liverpool to, to say hi. And uh, Hawthorne has this wonderful letter where they, they're walking the cold beach in Liverpool. It's windy. It's, it's November. And they, they crouch. They, they go into the sand dunes and crouch in the dunes to smoke a cigar. And Melville is talking the way he always does about futurity, about God. Is there a God? He was rest, a restless soul. Melville calls it landlessness in Moby Dick. You know, he could never find uh, that home. And it's a wonderful tribute that Hawthorne gives that, you know, he is not necessarily a, a, a religious man, but if he could find belief, he would be the most religious man on this planet. And uh, uh, eventually, Melville would, uh, and his wife would come into a small retirement. And they would, by this time, he and his wife seemed to have reconciled. They now had grandchildren in New York. And he was able to retire to his little study where he continued to write. And on his desk, uh, at the time of his death, would be the novella Billy Budd, one of the great classics, you know, discovered in the 1920s. Uh, one of the great, great books about morality, about, you know, what, you know, what do we do when there's all sorts of stuff happening. And um, on his, um, and he, he had a pile of manuscripts, and uh, they, they found a, a portable writing desk that he had used. And it, it did not have a bottom, so it was hollow. And inside the writing desk, written in paper that was taped inside was a motto. And the motto was, 
Keep true to the dreams of thy youth. Okay, I, I will end with, with this. Uh, this is actually how Why Read Moby Dick ends. The phrase comes from the German playwright and poet Frederick Schiller. But was, what was its relevance to Melville? Late in life, he wrote to his brother-in-law, at my years and with my disposition, or rather constitution, one gets to care less and less for everything except downright good feeling. Life is so short and so ridiculous and irrational from a certain point of view that one knows not what to make of it unless, well, finish the sentence for yourself. I propose that Melville would have finished that sentence with the words taped inside his writing desk. In the end, Melville had found a way back to the view espoused by Ishmael in Moby Dick. Doubts of all things earthly and intuitions of some things heavenly, this combination makes neither believer nor infidel, but makes a man who regards them both with equal eye. This redemptive mixture of skepticism and hope, this genial stoicism in the face of a short, ridiculous, and irrational life is why I read Moby Dick. Thank you. I'd be happy to answer or try to answer whatever questions you have. I imagine most of the folks here are pretty much in the choir as far as uh, having read or intend to read Moby Dick. I have not read myself uh, Pierre or the Ambiguities, but I've heard that it gives a lot of insight into Moby Dick. Would you care to comment on that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pierre is a fascinating book because it was written in the immediate aftermath of, of Moby Dick's publication. And uh, in it, he basically recounts what he was going through in many ways. There's all sorts of other stuff in Pierre. But he gives description of Pierre takes up writing as an author. And he works, and, and this is all, we know this is what Melville was going through. Melville, when he was writing Moby Dick, got so into it in the fall of 1850 that he'd go up there about 9.30. And if you, if you go to Pittsfield today, their house, Arrowhead, is now a museum. And the room where he wrote Moby Dick is right there. You know, you see the view. It's wonderful. Anyways, he'd go up there, close the door, and would work frantically till 1.30 or something. And people would knock on the door with lunch. He'd ignore it, just keep going, keep going, keep going, until exhausted around 4 o'clock, he would uh, uh, you know, finally come down. And he drove himself so hard that his eyes began to bother him terribly. And in Pierre, he describes what Pierre goes through. And it's, he's described where his eyes became so inflamed that he couldn't see the page. You know, he'd, he'd have to squint. He was just writing away. I mean, he was just driving himself that hard. Pierre is, is, is a novel of, it must have been so embarrassing for his family because he excavates all sorts of uh, uh, issues about his mother and his father that are, are just, you know, it's, it's really, it was, it's a tough, it's a cry of help almost. It's a psychically uh, uh, disturbing book, but it's really good in its own way. And, and, um, and all of his books are. The, the Confidence Man is a, is a late novel about a riverboat uh, trip uh, down the Mississippi in which basically the devil is on this riverboat. And the devil can change his guise. And it just, man, he just nails uh, you know, what's going on in America as, as the Civil War is approaching. And um, yeah, so there, if, if, you, if Moby Dick gets your interest, there's a lot of other Melville that's worth going. Type E, his first, is a wonderful read. It really is great. And it's really well written. You can just see a lot of what's, what's coming, coming there. And as I said earlier, the short stories are fun. Yes? Yes, uh, the central character on a relentless pursuit uh, sort of reminds you of Wilkes also. Can you speak to yeah. uh, that? Yeah. Uh, one of my books is called Sea of Glory. And it's about uh, what's known as the US Exploring Expedition of 1838 to 42, uh, which was led by a young uh, lieutenant named Charles Wilkes. Uh, 
we have, most people don't know about this story. It's the greatest voyage no one has ever heard of. Uh, the, the Smithsonian Institution, the U.S. Botanic Garden were all created to house the artifacts and specimens brought back by this four-year expedition in which they would be the first to chart a significant portion of the Antarctic continent. In fact, they would be the ones to name it the Antarctic continent. Uh, you know, they'd go, they'd go travel 84,000 miles. It was a remarkable success, but Wilkes was an Ahab. And, uh, and in fact, Melville had a cousin, guess what, who served in the XX. And, uh, and so uh, much of uh, it's been said uh, that you can, you know, informing Ahab is this Charles Wilkes to a certain extent. And what's interesting, that they would publish an edition of the narrative of the voyage that was highly illustrated. And remember, this is before slideshows and, and things like that. And so it was elaborately, Melville had his own edition of this narrative. And at one point they go to New Zealand and there is a, uh, they meet a Maori warrior with, with this dramatically tattooed face. Uh, and it's very clear that Melville based his description of Queequeg on this, this character. Remember he describes Queequeg, uh, he compares him to George Washington you know, George Washington cannibalistically developed, I think he says. And um, you look at this engraving of a Maori warrior, you go, yeah, that's George Washington. You know, you can see where he's coming from. And, and so once again, Melville is, is, you know, it's not all coming from the clouds. It's, this is based on what was happening then. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so for me, it was very interesting to go from In the Heart of the Sea, which is about you know, the, the incident that inspired the climax, to see of glory, to see sort of, you know, the other side of, of kind of the Ahab real life story. Yes? Um, oh, is it on? Is it on? Uh, to go back, um, I, I've, uh, you said that Moby Dick's considered the greatest American novel, but then some people consider Mark Twain's um, Huckleberry Finn, the greatest American novel. So, which one do you think is? Well, and why? Good. Yeah, we can. You could throw Great Gatsby in there, and you know, maybe. Well, you know, you could have a, a, a death match, you know, between these novels. Well, I I maintain that that Moby Dick is the greatest because I think it's for me. I mean, I love Huckleberry Finn. I mean, you know, as I think Hemingway said, he sort of you know invented American fiction with that book. Um, but you know, I, for my money, there is something about the global reach of Moby Dick that is very um, contemporary and modern and American. Um, you know, it, it, it for America in my sort of under the way I've come to appreciate America is what makes us different is that you know we from very early on we were made from the uh, global forces and then have ridden those global forces and. Uh, Moby Dick is, he, he succeeds in the trick of writing a book about America that is set on a ship, <laughs> you know? And that, I, I mean, I think, you know, when you're with him, and, and I talk about this in, why, in my book, is, is that, you know, scattered throughout this novel are all these allusions to scenes from America that are clearly based on Melville's own experience. And he was quite widely traveled. Uh, in in um, you know in there, so I you know I I would argue that the reach of Moby Dick, almost the relevance of it, uh, takes it just one more level. Um, yeah, I'm not. Once we get to this kind of thing, it's it's you know there's no need to have you know yes you're there you're there. One interesting though, um, Hemingway late in life. Hemingway was a very competitive person, as we all know, and late in life um, he 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 wrote a very revealing letter to his editor saying basically, you know, I'm good. I know I'm good. And I've got basically two writers, you know, Dostoevsky and Melville. I still have to, you know, whatever. But that was basically all he was worried about, you know. And uh, which is interesting on all sorts of levels when it comes to, to this, this kind of thing. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm you know, I, I think they're, I think what's great is to have books that, uh, people can share in common. 
You know, I mean, you know, it's it's great to have something that. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? And for me, Melville's Moby Dick will be that touchstone. Uh, I got the impression after reading his first two books that that his experience in the South Pacific on those whaling voyages was maybe a personal failure in that he jumped ship and he didn't complete his contract and he had to come back with another ship. Did you find that to be true? Maybe he wrote Moby Dick to say that, you know, I, I was there, I didn't do it well, but I really understand. Well, you know, I, my take is, 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 is different and my take is informed from the context of In the Heart, In the Heart of the Sea, the story of the Essex. And because um, I, you, right, the jumping ship is absolutely fundamental to Melville's whaling experience where, you know, he's, he's a whaleman, but he leaves. He, he decides to, to jump ship. He quits. He quits and then has the story that will make his career. He lives with the cannibals, you know? I mean, so that he quits. He find, he talk, he gets the material for his fiction and his life by doing that. In, in uh, the Essex, the whale rams their ship. They're sitting there in their whale boats. What do we do? The natural thing would be to follow the trade winds to the Marquesa Islands, the very islands in which Melville would, would desert. And you know they'd be there within weeks with plenty of time before they'd run out of provisions. They were so afraid of rumors of cannibals that they did the impossible voyage of going against the wind sailed for three months and were reduced in the most tragic of ironies to survival cannibalism, you know, so that they lived the nightmare. And so Melville does the, after hearing this story, it's interesting, embraces exactly the fear that drove the Essex guys the other way. And I think, so for him it was transformative. And I think, you know, the, the connection with Queequeg, one of the great characters in all of literature, Remember, Ishmael and Queequeg share a bed, and he's terrified because he's sleeping with a cannibal. And then they, he ends up realizing, this is the greatest guy I have ever met in my life, and says, you know, what was I thinking? You know, what is it, you know, about this stupid superficial sense of, you know, whatever? We're all the same people. I mean, that is a, that's, you know, that's a, you know, a wonderful sentiment for today, but in 1850, that was like, blow the back of your head off, you know? And that, I think, is largely based on his experience in the Marquesas. Not that, you know, if you read Taipei, it was pretty scary. And I don't know if any of you saw, uh, there was a news story uh, in, in, uh, in British press uh, yesterday. Someone uh, emailed it to me where someone, uh, a German tourist was, was traveling in Nukuhaiva, you know, the same island in the Marquesas, and disappeared. He was last seen with some guide or something, and they have just found bits and pieces of his body and burned, and they're wondering about cannibalism, <laughs> and you know, which is just you know, who knows what actually happened. But you know, it's very interesting that Melville, when he published Taipei, was accused of making it all up, and uh, you know, clearly there was there's you know some kind of reality. Yes. If you don't mind my asking, do you have a favorite chapter, and do you skim cetology? <laughs> well, uh, yes. I, I do have a favorite chapter. I, I alluded to it. Nantucket chapter just has to be my favorite. Although, I have to say the other favorite chapter is the hyena. And it's where Ishmael basically delivers his approach to life. He, you know, up until this time, he is so psyched. He's going to go whaling. Who cares if it's dangerous? You know, no one, you can stove, you can kill me, but my soul is imperishable. But then he goes whaling. He realizes, this is really dangerous, and I could die. And, and he decides to write out his will, and he sort of gives his take on life. And it's like, none of us know what's going on. It's scary. Half the time, we feel like the joke is on us. But you know, it's just that his his take, and so I really love that chapter. And okay, you asked about cetology. Yes. Well, I you know I I've I've it's cetology for those of you who haven't read it. It's where Melville and it, it's where Melville creates his own classification system for whales, and it's hilarious. I mean, it's it's some of the greatest parody writing ever, and it helps to realize that it's all a great big joke. 
and so what he's doing, he, you know, he, he creates this system where he says, these whales are like this, these whales are here, and then by the end it's clear that there's certain whales don't fit in anyone, and he just says, the heck with it, you know, and th this is, you know, this, this is a, you know, unclassified, this is full of Leviathan, you know, something, uh, he, he does a little joke on Shakespeare, signifying nothing, or something like that. And so if you can look at those as something fun rather than ponderous, you'll find there are nooks and crannies in it that are, are redemptive. If you go at trying to say, so what's he saying? He, you know, you know, you're just, you know, it's, it's no fun. And it's really, it's, it's kind of missing the point. I mean, he's, there, it is a really funny book, uh, especially those early chapters. There's, there's one uh, uh, when, when Ishmael is trying to find a ship and he gets on the deck of the Queequeg, uh, the, 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 the Pequod, and he's trying to convince the owner, uh, I think it's Bildad, to, uh, to, uh, to bring, on, uh, bring on Queequeg as a har harpooner. And the, the, the ship owner, get, always, you can just tell already, he gets names wrong all the time, and he calls him Quahog. And it's just, you know, it could be a Seinfeld episode, the way they go back and forth, Quahog, you know, right? He says, anyways. So, so that's my one last question. Somewhat lighter tone to continue the Hawthorne versus uh, Melville and cannibalism. A couple months ago, I read a fascinating book on Mark Twain as a food critic. At the beginning of the book, <laughs> it said that during Twain's lifetime, his bestseller, most popular, made the most money, was Innocence Abroad. Yeah. You mentioned Taipei. So do you think there's something about America at that time that they really wanted to travel? Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's that's a really good point. Tra travel books were what people read. I mean, you know, in a way that I don't think we we have today. And because the world was new, you know, they were going to places that people didn't know about, and and there was real adventure and have you know we have into thin air and stuff like that. But you know, can you imagine when you know, the world was something where you were discovering things on an almost daily basis? And and yeah, uh, the the, the tra travel literature was was very big. And uh, you know, it was a whole. There's a whole genre of it that most of it we don't aren't aware of. But you're right. I mean, and, and that's interest, interesting comparison. You know, Twain was a writer who is a timeless writer when it comes to Huckleberry Finn. But he was really popular in his day. He was the most popular writer. And what's interesting about Melville is that this book was not popular. And yet it was rediscovered. It's you know I think it's 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 more almost more like a lot of artwork you know like Gauguin. No one you know the impressionists were okay you know a lot of great artwork was not discovered until appreciated or became valuable until long after. And and I think um, with Moby Dick um, uh, you know it's very much the same way. And so well thank you very much.